an agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire. I'm Felix Bunnell, resident historian for Cairo Radio, heard with Dave Ross Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, the shocking 1935 kidnapping of young timber heir George Weyerhaeuser. This ransom letter was turned over to the FBI. Nine-year-old George Weyerhaeuser kidnapped. They made him sign the back of the envelope as identification to his parents. And then, from the archives, listening back to Dave Ross and other Cairo radio voices on 9-11. But first, let's go all over the map. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. And our resident historian Felix Bunnell joins us Friday mornings for All Over the Map, which is a quick look at the stories behind the names of local places and things. And this week, his subject is that time in the early (laughs) 1980s when SeaTac Airport just disappeared for six months. Hey, Dave. Yeah, it was 38 years ago, September 1st, 1983, when longtime Democratic U.S. Senator from the great state of Washington, Henry M. Scoop Jackson, native son of Everett and somewhat hawkish lawmaker, guy who always had Boeing's back. He passed away suddenly and unexpectedly at his home on Grand Avenue of an aortic aneurysm. He was 71. His death came in the aftermath of the shooting down by the Soviet Union of a Korean airline 747 near Sakhalin Island. It's a pretty scary time in the Cold War. That 747, of course, was built right there in Everett, and all 269 people aboard were lost. Senator Jackson had just spoken at a press conference and condemned the downing of the plane. Now, on September 13th, as a tribute to the senator, but without really consulting anybody, the Port of Seattle Commission voted to change the name of SeaTac to Henry M. Jackson International Airport. Boom, just like that. Remember, they even changed that time and temperature sign that used to be on the median there as you approach uh, from the north on that little freeway. Mm-hmm. said Henry M. Jackson and the time and the temperature. Huge public outcry followed. Uh, Tacoma people in particular and Port of Tacoma, they felt particularly angry having the city's name taken off the airport since that was part of the original deal struck back in 1942 or 43 to build and help fund the airport. There were letters to the editor against it. There were polls showing five to one in favor of changing the name back. They even had an advisory ballot in Tacoma in November 83 on restoring the name, which was approved by a margin of four to one. Um, One of the worries was that the short version of the name, Jackson Airport, would be confused with Mississippi or just completely detached from any reference to Seattle or Tacoma. In the port election that November, two incumbents were defeated and the name controversy was at least partially blamed. Now, the Port Commission held a public meeting in February, on February 15th, 1984, at the old Renton Sheraton. This was their first public meeting since the name change, and they got an earful. Finally, on February 28th, 1984, the commission voted 3-2 to two to change the name back, so it was just short of six months that we had Henry M. Jackson International Airport. If you look at the old newspaper clippings, all the news out of that airport in those, those months, they call it Henry M. Jackson Airport. You don't see the name mm-hmm. SeaTac anywhere. Um, one little bit of good news, um, WashDOT, they decided early on to wait things out and not change any signage on I-5 or 405 or 509. Smart move. But, yeah, and by doing so, they figured they saved somewhere between thirty and $40,000. There you go. So, did You you covered that. Weren't you working at Cairo then, Dave? I was working at it, and I, I'd forgotten completely until just now. That's why I'm here. Yes, it is. <laughs> and by the way, <laughs> so how does Tacoma feel now that the official name is SEA? You know, that's an interesting question because I've talked to the Port of Seattle public affairs people. And that SEA, that's sort of the international brand. It's still the Seattle-Tacoma International Airport. Oh, I see. But they say SEA is what the airport's known as globally. Okay. So SeaTac, that name's not going anywhere. But 
they're always tinkering with branding. And that, that, C, that SEA launch came right before the pandemic. So it's kind of unclear how that will play out once air travel returns to back to normal, whenever that's going to happen. Serving Greater Seattle. We've come a long way from the logging methods of yesterday. Even the saws are mechanized. But there's still a thrill when the faller cries. Listen to that crackly sound. It must mean Felix Bennell is here. That's from an old Warehouser promo film. And that company and that family have been prominent in the Northwest for well over a century. And now a long ago kidnapping from a member of the Warehouse family has inspired a new book, which our resident historian Felix Bennell is here to tell us all about. Felix is brought to you by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Good morning. Morning, Colleen. Yeah, this is probably in the top 10 of most notorious crimes in the Northwest. It was back in 1935 when little nine-year-old George Warehouser, whose great-grandfather founded the company, was snatched by kidnappers on his way home from school in Tacoma one May afternoon. Now, this was not long after the infamous Lindbergh baby kidnapping in New Jersey. It was in the middle of an era of high-profile bank robbers and other criminals, along with the rise of the FBI, which J. Edgar Hoover was in the process of founding in 1935 from the predecessor agency he'd taken over a decade earlier. Now, the fact the warehouser kidnapping happened here, it's not a secret. It comes up in magazine articles, and it's there in any Northwest history timeline. But a local author named Brian Johnston has the first-ever full-length book about it coming out next week. It's called Deep in the Woods, and he went really deep into the FBI documents and court transcripts and even managed to snag an interview with someone very close to the case. Now, I spoke with Brian Johnston a few days ago. He says when it comes to the characters involved and to the narrative of what happened, the research he undertook did not disappoint. The thing plays out like a Hollywood movie. I mean, half the stuff in here I couldn't make up if I tried. You know, when I was researching this book, I would constantly be running upstairs to my wife saying, you cannot believe what I just learned about the story. It was just golden nugget after golden nugget. <laughs> it was remarkable. That's like Seattle's morning news, golden nugget after golden nugget. Um, first of all, <laughs> exactly. George's great-grandfather is Frederick Warehouser. He's the guy who started the Warehouser dynasty. Brian Johnston says he'd still be considered the 12th richest man in American history. For comparison, another local guy, Bill Gates, is number 11. So little George Warehouser was a natural target for a kidnap and ransom scheme. And so around noon on May 25, 1935, he left the Lowell School on foot, and he wasn't there to meet his sister outside the Annie Wright School for their chauffeured ride home. When he still wasn't home by early afternoon, his parents, John and Helen Warehouser, called the police. Around 6.30 p.m., a special delivery letter containing a ransom note arrived at the Warehouser home. This is from an old newsreel. This ransom letter was turned over to the FBI. Nine-year-old George Weyerhauser kidnapped. They made him sign the back of the envelope as identification to his parents. The G-men made a searching study of this elaborate kidnap message. He gave a list of the size of the bills to be paid in the ransom money, $200,000. Side note, should we be reading the news like that again with dramatic music and emphasis like that? I really think we should end the sound of a projector, like projector sound effect in the background, so it sounds like we're delivering a newsreel script. Yeah. yeah. So they asked for $200,000. That's pretty audacious for a couple of reasons. Number one, that's equal to about $4 million today. It's four times what the Lindbergh uh, ransom was, and it's the same dollar amount as what hijacker D.B. Cooper would ask for 36 years later. So it's way off the charts. So even though George's dad is John Philip Warehouser Jr., he doesn't have that kind of cash just lying around, and it takes him a few days to pull it all together. Meanwhile, the kidnappers have placed George Warehouser in a hole in the ground near Issaquah. 
Then they take him all the way over to Spokane, driving on historic Route 10, I might add, and they stash him in a rental house on South Hill. Now, I checked a week ago, and I looked at it. The house is still standing, relatively unchanged. So the warehousers get the money together. George's uncle follows a bizarre series of instructions, like a scavenger hunt in reverse, to hand it over to two men on a dark stretch of road midway between Seattle and Tacoma. So once the kidnappers have the money, they drive back to Spokane to get George. They load George up in a box, put him in the trunk of their car, head back across the state, and they have no idea where they're going to drop George off because they hadn't planned that far in advance. These guys were not the sharpest <laughs> tools in the shed. So they finally decide to leave George on a, like a, a timber road out in the forest of Issaquah, again, really close to where they had him buried in the ground. And so they dropped him off in the, like midnight. And he said, here's a dollar and a blanket. And they said, your dad's going to come pick you up. And they just left. So little George is standing out there in the dark in the woods. It's not freezing, but it's not exactly pleasant. He doesn't know it at that point, but his parents and the police, none of the good guys, have any idea where he is. And he finally says, this is stupid, I'm leaving. So he starts walking. And he walks for miles. And he finally gets to this farmer's house. And he knocks on the door, and the farmer answers the door. And he goes, hi, I'm George Warehouser. Can you take me to my parents' house? So out of nowhere, this farmer answers the door and standing on his porch, is the boy who's been on the front page for the last week, just magically appears out of the blue. So the farmer, a poultry guy named Boniface, drives little George home to Tacoma to reunite with his frantic parents. That's when the federal boys, who've been lying low before the ransom is paid, kick into gear. The investigation in the manhunt, well, part of it anyway, goes remarkably fast. This is some more newsreel audio. The FBI has a nationwide system of hunting down kidnapped cash. The G-men made up a list of their own. Washington Press ground out hundreds of thousands of these. They circularized the nation, banks, stores, and filling stations, any place where money might be spent. And the trail led to Salt Lake City, where in this 5 and 10, one of the bills on the list was changed to buy this cigarette case. And swiftly, an airplane was taking Harmon Whaley and his wife to Tacoma for trial. He gets 45 years. She gets 20 years. Yeah, so there were a total of three kidnappers. All were eventually tracked down through the serial numbers on the ransom money, again, which the FBI was still using that method after D.B. Cooper 35 years later. So two were a married couple, 24-year-old Harmon Whaley and 19-year-old Margaret Whaley. They were arrested in Salt Lake City. That was about a week after the kidnapping. A third guy took a little bit longer. He was a 32-year-old career criminal named William Mayen. He and Whaley had met in prison in Idaho and figured George Warehouser would be a good target because one of his grandfathers had just died. They figured mom and dad would have extra money from an inheritance. He was captured in May of 1936. Now, I mentioned Brian Johnson had tracked down someone very close to the case. That person is George Warehouser, little George himself, who's not so little anymore, and who was 94 years old when Brian interviewed him a few years ago, and who's now 96. This is just a snippet of Brian's interview. The audio quality isn't that great, but we get a sense of how George Warehouser looks back on this incident from his childhood 86 years ago. That was considered a heinous crime, you know, and it still is. I consider it to be a novelty and a dangerous occupation involved, but, you know, it had a wrap-up that was all's well that ends well. I always felt that of all the people in the world, that uh, my mom and dad, I, I feel still very badly what happened to them. Yeah, and there's many, many more twists and turns of this book than we could fit into a radio story. It'll make your head spin. The book is called Deep in the Woods. Author is Brian Johnson. It's available for pre-order now, and we have links at My Northwest. For this is Cairo. 
where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. For this edition of From the Archives, listening back with Dave Ross for the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Twenty years ago tomorrow, I was on the air, Dory Monson was on the air, Heather Bosch was on the air, and a young historian named Felix Bennell was rolling tape, and here he is now. Hi, Felix. Hey, morning, Dave. Yeah, it's uh, hard to believe it's been 20 years, and um, long before I worked at Cairo or worked at a history museum, I would press record on a tape, uh, tape recorder when stuff was going on in local news because I thought someday I might be able to play it on the radio. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and sure enough... Um, so I got some samples that, that I pulled from the tapes of that day. I don't have the moment where the uh, the plane struck or when the news broke because I think what's more interesting is sort of what comes not long after, whether it's the news and then the analysis that Cairo has been so good at for so many years. Um, let's start off with just this fairly straightforward report from, from a very young Heather Bosch about what's going on at the city of Seattle. Mayor Paul Shell says he's been in contact with military leaders and Shell says there will be a Navy ship stationed in Elliott Bay. He wouldn't give any more details where the ship comes from or what kind it will be. He said, don't be alarmed, though, if you see that military ship out in Elliott Bay, that's where it will be stationed, as he says, a precaution. Also, we can tell you now that the urban search and rescue team based here in the Puget Sound region will be leaving around 5 p.m. from McCord Air Force Base to New York to do what this team does probably better than anybody else in the world, which is to search for people in collapsed buildings and other difficult situations. So they'll be taking off around 5. The mayor then added that he wants everyone to pray for the president and members of Congress, who he says, quote, will be making some very difficult decisions in the coming days. He then added that he wants us all to pray for the victims of this terrorist attack. Live in downtown Seattle, Heather Bosch, News Radio 710 Cairo. See, and that's what people like Heather do best of all. They just get in there and just start giving you the facts. And, um, of course, we were on AM radio back then, so even the the phone call doesn't sound as good as it would sound on FM just a few years later. Um, As the day progressed, you you had your show from 9 to noon. Um, Dory was on, you know, same uh, from noon to 3. And um, Dory sort of got into the emotional part of it. And he's not emotional in this, what we're going to hear here, but he talks about how the emotions were at, at work at that time of the day. I think a lot of people today would say, and, and this is emotion that is talking today, and hopefully whatever uh, the American response is will be a reasoned one. But I think right now the emotion of the moment has Americans saying that we must strike back a hundred times stronger than the force with which we were struck. Because that is the only way to stop terrorism. Now, again, that's an emotional response. What is the most practical response? That will be uh, evaluated, but there will be a response. You can be sure of that. Yeah, and I'm not sure if we know, still know the answer to what the, <laughs> what yeah. the most uh, rational response is here 20 years later. Um, you know, it's interesting. I looked at that time like 20 years after Pearl Harbor and how different it is because in 1961, we'd, you know, we'd vanquished Japan and Germany, our, our World War II yeah. enemies. Um, but we were still battling the Soviets, and we had the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis. So it wasn't as if everything was fixed after World War II. We had a whole different set of no. problems. But it's it's different now, 20 years after 9-11. Um, I went back earlier this summer and talked with some of the elected officials who were in office 20 years ago just to get their memories. Um, Chris Gregoire, though she wasn't yet governor, she was attorney general. And I asked her what uh, her morning was like on September 11, 2001. Of course, I uh, went into work immediately and began to ask the question, 
did they start on the East Coast? Are they coming to the West Coast? Knowing that we have some vulnerabilities here and some significance, uh, particularly, for example, with a Boeing plant, um, would there be further activity? Should we expect it? Um, what was going to be shut down? What were citizens supposed to do? How should we respond to all of that? And I remember having, as I recall, a conversation with the governor. Is there anything that you need from us uh, at the attorney general's office, legal or otherwise? We stand ready to help you in anything you may need. Yeah, and that uncertainty, that not knowing the the bulk of the narrative that was so much was unknown on the morning of 9-11 in terms, you know, we there thought there might be tens of thousands of people who died in the World Trade Center. Yeah. I mean, and, and people started to assume it was Osama bin Laden, but we just didn't really know as much as we knew even a week or so later. I also talked with uh, Secretary of State Sam Reed. He drew a comparison to the uh, Nisqually earthquake, which had happened earlier that year. This made me more aware, as did the Nisqually earthquake, uh, that the staff and some of the public were looking at me to see if I would remain calm, if I would remain focused, if I wouldn't kind of you know, panic a bit or something, and uh, kind of reassuring them that uh, you know, everything's going to be okay. We're going to move forward. We need to focus on what we need to do. And um, Ron Sims was King County executive then, and he got the, you know, he, he saw on the news early that morning, and then he looked outside, and there was a, one of the special King County armored cars uh, to pick him up and haul him down to the emergency center down somewhere in the south part of the county. I think they call that place the Rock. I couldn't get him to tell me where it is exactly. Um, but he, you know, looking back on it 20 years later, he, you know, he, he, he says nobody in King County was harmed on that day, and that, and that was a big, a big plus for him. 9-11 has its own universe, and you've got to understand that nothing bad came out of it. So when, when you watch professional orchestration and talent applied to make sure that there's not a single citizen in this county, not in a daycare facility, not in a childcare facility, not in a nursing home facility, not in a hospital, not at a school building, not at a grocery store, when you know that people made sure that no one was harmed, oh, wow, you walk out feeling really, really good. Yeah, and I thought it was a really interesting sort of long, long view and very localized view from Ron Sims. Now, um, the bulk of the tape that I have is from your nine to noon show, Dave. And um, you said a lot of brilliant things. I don't, I don't mind saying that. You know, I'm not trying to buddy you up or anything. Of course not. Um, but, <laughs> but uh, and we missed you. It's nice to have you back, by the way. Um, the uh, this is a, this is some uh, observations you made about having grown up in New York and what you were what you were feeling on that morning 20 years ago. This is the rogue attack we've been told so much about. And yet, from the experts we've heard and talked to this morning, how could you have prevented it? It didn't come via missile. It came via passenger jets in areas which are heavily traveled by passenger jets all the time. There will... Uh, Somebody who grew up in the New York area and has visited New York City to see something like this, there's, there's really nothing you can say except that you're upset, you're in shock, you're angry. They're, I don't, I mean, I've got friends in New York. I don't, I don't know what's happened to them. I, they may have been working. I don't know. I've called my parents already. They were upstate. But there will be many, many other phone calls which will not be returned in the same fashion. And it is just beginning. This will go on for months. It will go on for years. Yeah. How, how do you feel hearing your voice from 20 years ago saying those words? Um, 
I, it's it's funny because uh, I avoid nine eleven news because if the following uh, we I went to New York the the weekend after it happened and spent some time down there and talking to firefighters and relief workers and just walking around the uh, walking around the pile and walking around uh, New York and just remember looking at all those high rises and saying this any one of these things could be so easily hit I the the vulnerability that uh, that made me feel is uh, was very uncomfortable, and now looking back and realizing some of the mistakes we made in in response to it, uh, and not being able to take any of that back, I just I find the whole thing um, frustrating. Yeah, uh, I myself will probably uh, mostly be avoiding media over the weekend. I know I shouldn't be saying that, but um, yeah, that's that's just the way I feel. For me, it's like the, the narrative's not complete. With World War II, the narrative has kind of a beginning, middle, and end. And we can sort of, it's not yeah. satisfying. Obviously, hundreds of thousands of people died in World War II. But like the pandemic, 9-11 doesn't have a final chapter. We're still sort of stuck in this loop of living history, which, as a historian, I don't really want to live history. I want to study it and talk about it. Yeah. Living through it is exhausting. And I feel like we're still living through it 20 years later. So true. Felix Bunnell. Felix, thank you. Thanks, Dave. I'm Felix Bunnell at Cairo Radio in Seattle. Follow me on Twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at MyNorthwest.com. And please join me again for the next episode of The Resident Historian. Things are swinging in Seattle. Things are swinging in Seattle. It's the place for...